Our next story takes us out of the Idler and into the New Magazine in 1912 with The Thing Invisible. This is the last of the original six stories that were published in Hodgson's lifetime. We didn't really get into all the anthologies of the Karnacki stories, but there were a couple versions of the original six published. One, I believe, in Great Britain, which had more or less all the original stories as they were published. This story, The Thing Invisible, being the one exception, which Hodgson revised a fair amount out of the new magazine and into the later anthologies. But there's also a weird American printing that, like, combines four or five of them into, like, a single narrative or something like that. I didn't get a chance to read that one. Yeah, it's not really a single narrative. It's like, he he has his daring guests over, and he's like, have have either of you seen the Monty Python film and now for something completely different? No, I haven't. I have not seen that one. So, and now for something completely different was basically America's introduction to the Monty Python sketches from the Flying Circus. Yeah. And was it just the same Flying Circus sketches or did they like reperform it? It's the sketches, but out of context. Okay. So in the Flying Circus episodes, they do kind of have a through line and they have like a lot of the time. It feels like... Everything kind of fits together, even if loosely, Yeah. <laughs> when you watch those. But when you watch that, it's like, it's basically just a random collection of sketches right. going from one to the other. It doesn't have a lot of connective tissue or anything like that. Like, it's just mm-hmm. kind of, here's Monty Python, right? Like, here's what they do. And that all the famous sketches come from there, right? So, yeah, they are actually sketches from the show, but it's not like in the sort of format that the show has right. where it's sort of yeah. like everything kind of fits together in a way. It's kind of like that. Like it feels very, I, I only skimmed through it personally, but it, it does feel like kind of the summary versions of what the stories are. And right. Yeah. And it, it even uses some of the same lines and everything, but it's just like they're truncated and he just kind of goes from one to the other. And it's just kind of like, and then this happened. And then there was this, this particular case the gateway of the monster case or something like that. And yeah. he'll like, he'll tell you about it, but mm. it's not really worth that much. Like it's, it's, just, I don't know. It's kind of, it seems weird, but it, it, he did something like this to the Nightland as well. I don't think that was actually published, but there was something about like wanting to make sure the American copyright was secured for some reason. He did mm. this and I don't really understand it, Yeah, but like he wrote this version of the Nightland called the dream of X. And it's like, less than a quarter of the size but apparently it like cuts out a lot of the really cool stuff so it's not really the nightland itself is a bit of a difficult book because it's long and it's told this really weird style but it has a lot of cool ideas in it a lot of really cool very very horrific mysterious like decimated future concepts and stuff like that weird monsters which seems to be something that Hodgson likes you know he likes coming up with (laughs) weird creatures so there's a lot of that in there, but anyway, so we might do that on the podcast. It's like a lot longer than what we usually do, but we've talked about it. So yeah, if we'll we see. ever revisit Hodgson, maybe we could consider doing that. Yeah, but for this one, it seems like this story is the, well, I don't know if it's the only one that Hodgson significantly revised during his lifetime, as there's some debate about the ones that were published posthumously, but certainly this one, the, you can read the version that appeared in the new magazine online, as well as the revised version, which appears pretty much everywhere else. 
I didn't read the original version. I just did a quick side-by-side -side compare with Notepad++, and it does seem mostly pro-style that he mixed up in the story. The guy on Forgotten Futures says that the revised version is much better, so I'll just take his word for it. So, taking a look at the actual story itself, Karnacki had been in Kent, and he assembles his usual listening party to tell them about a Mr. George Jarnock, the eldest son of the estate at Burtontree, who had wired Karnacki for help. The old chapel attached to the castle has a reputation for being haunted. The old butler is almost stabbed to death with a strange old dagger. The dagger itself is potentially haunted or cursed, haunting the chapel, one might say. <laughs> it yes. appears the dagger was wielded by an unknown hand, perhaps an invisible one, but he was apparently stabbed in broad daylight in front of a bunch of witnesses. And Karnacki consults with them, including the poor butler, examines the space, and examines the dagger, but can turn up no clues initially, as the attack seems to have come out of the void. Karnacki wants to spend the night in the chapel to watch the dagger, an idea which Sir Alfred Jarnock does not like, but Karnacki does it clandestinely without his knowledge, and he clads himself in a nearby suit of armor, it's a nice handy thing to have around, and armed with a revolver and flashlight, gets in the chapel undiscovered. He begins to poke around, so he sets up his camera apparatus, and is just totally overcome by fear at this point, as if there was something coming through the void. There are some odd sounds near his camera, but the light reveals nothing, and suddenly the dagger is gone, and he's suddenly struck by a heavy blow in his breast. The armor comes in quite handy, and he yeah. throws his camera, making a mad dash for the exit. So after escaping, he removes the armor. Both the chain and the plate have been pierced, slightly cutting into his skin. The thing had been aiming for his heart, and he spent most of the night ruminating on the situation, and goes back into the chapel in the morning. His camera is still mostly intact. The revolver and lamp are there as well. And he sees a dagger on the ground and instinctually puts his foot over it. And he then examines the dagger, can't see anything wrong with it really, and puts it back in its place and feels something uncomfortable after doing so. And then he's struck by this idea. So he goes to the local photographer to use his dark room. And he tries to develop the unexposed plate in the camera as part of his experiment in lightless photography. He sees some strange black markings, some in the shape of a cross-hilted dagger, the position of which move around in the different negatives. So with this change of position of this odd shape, he uses some calipers to measure their movements and conducts some more experiments in the chapel. And then meets with George Jarnock, and the two of them bring a dummy to the chapel, partially dressing it in plate armor, and then putting it in there. And Karnaki positions it near the altar, and sure enough, the dagger flies out and stabs it in the chest, Karnaki successfully predicting the movement of the dagger. The dagger being part of a spring-loaded trap. And Jarnock says his father is the only one who has the key to this area. And it just happens that there's some valuable jewels belonging to his late wife that are stored there. The trap was set up to prevent any thieves from stealing them. The sounds he hears are a bit of a mystery. Another one of those vague supernatural hints that he can't entirely figure out. But on the whole, another case solved and the party once again dismissed. So I like this one a lot. Even though it was not a supernatural story, there's just something 
I don't know, oddly charming about it. I like how he solved the mystery by using his photography skills and, you know, whatever lightless photography is. It's kind of a cool techno babble thing. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. I thought this one came together. It was fun. And I like the medieval imagery in it. Of I guess he's in an old castle for a lot of these stories, but him gallivanting around in this suit of armor yeah. uh, <laughs> a pretty like fun a mental image <laughs> yeah i enjoyed this one a lot as well i agree that i like that imagery of it, it definitely it does feel a little more like ancient in that way in that like that time period yeah and the whole idea of like the booby trapped uh, chest of jewels or whatever it just yeah, feels this one very reminded me a lot of like homes or something like yeah this one right. especially yeah because mm-hmm. often in those stories there's some kind of weird contraption or some kind of like weird i don't know like is it like something like that like a something that's like a thing that at first seems like it can't be explained but that turns out to be some some guy pulling a weird trick but like usually with the intent to murder someone right yeah like what's the speckled band and the rattlesnake mm-hmm. or whatever it is the snake the poisonous snake anyway and I don't know. Yeah, this one really reminded me of that kind of thing. Although it was kind of weird that in the end it was just some old guy who like was kind of going senile and uh, yeah, better activate the trap. Right. It's like it's one of those weird episodes of the Avengers where it's like a bunch of younger guys kind of up to no good, and then there's some old guy who has all the money, and he's like, "Yeah, it's not the same anymore without the trains." And, uh, <laughs> it's, just, it's just really weird like that's kind of what it reminded me of <laughs> back in my day we were still colonizing india and now we can't do that anymore yeah, yeah. right <laughs> and you can't really blame the old man he's actually harmless but he's just like he knows this secret and he's damn well gonna make sure that everything is running properly <laughs> and these kind of stories of setting up some kind of trap for the thieves who are trying to steal your jewelry really do date back to the Middle Ages. I mean, there's a couple in the Decameron. I'm sure you could find examples of stories like that elsewhere. I, I haven't read through the entire Arabian Nights, but it wouldn't surprise me if you found a story like that oh, yeah. in there as well. So then you read the Decameron? Do you like that? That's, that's something always something I wanted to look Yeah, I, I read it all the way through. I, I loved it, oh, yeah. Nice. Oh, that's cool. Gushin, have you read it? No, but I. it's definitely one I've wanted to get to sometime. Yeah, it sounds pretty pretty neat. I mean, it's long. There, there's a hundred stories in it, mm. but some are like legitimately laugh out loud funny. Like, so, <laughs> it's 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 really great stuff. And Pasolini adapted four or five yeah. of them, I want to say, for his film on it, and that that kind of spawned a whole wave of like sleazier knockoffs of other Decameron stories, plus other stories they they threw in there. I, I forget what some of the titles of those Decameron knockoff movies were, but there's a good two or three, if not more of them. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say Tom Baker shows up in that, but that's the Canterbury Tales It, it is one. the Canterbury Tales, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like this Decameron film, and, and certainly the original stories are really cool, too. But yeah, I like this one a lot. I don't have a whole lot to say about it, as it's a pretty fairly straightforward thing. And, you know, we don't get a lot of the electric pentacle and we don't get a lot of the ancient ritual and weird ghosts and things like that it's just kind of a cool straightforward mystery with some nice medieval imagery yeah Yeah. you still get his photography though which is pretty neat you do yeah and he seems like a very skilled photographer certainly has a wide array of tools in his belt here for solving these kind of issues 
and Hodgson himself, being a photographer, would know about a lot of this stuff. Yeah. For sure. In the BBC adaptation for the Rivals of Sherlock Holmes thing they did for the, the Horse of the Invisible, he's developing his negatives on these very large glass plates. And I think they specify the medium a couple times in the stories, it being either a negative or a plate, depending on what, what the story is. But some of that photography equipment from the turn of the century is both really impressive at how good quality some of the pictures come out. I mean, like really, really fine detail in a lot of them, but also very inconvenient to take. I think they were past the point where you need to pose for a super long time for the picture to come oh. out at this time. But you know that, that was a thing initially, especially with yeah. 19th century photography. But uh, around this era, I mean, dealing with glass plate negatives and things like that, they break very easily. <laughs> you know, you, you drop one and there goes your photograph. He never comments on that in the stories, but I did notice something we might might briefly mention later. But in the crossover book for Devils, mm-hmm. the author does point out how inconvenient and annoying it is to deal with the camera. because yes. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he definitely highlights that. That's kind of that was kind of fun. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I like this one a lot overall. I don't know if you guys had anything more on this one. No, I mean, for some reason, so I read these in the Collected Hodgson, Volume 2 of the Collected Hodgson, which is like, it's a four-volume series published by Nightshade, I think. Yeah. And it's got the House of the Borderland and all the Karnaki stories. And just like they did an executive decision to put the grief poem at the beginning of House on the Borderland, possibly, they have the thing of the invisible first and i don't know if that's because it was written first or what but that's the order so the thing invisible actually comes before the gateway of a monster which is the first story in the ghost finder book right (laughs) and so when i reread i hadn't read this one i just read three of the stories before i think oh okay and so and i hadn't read this one so then i'm like okay i'll start with this one and it was like one of these ones where, yeah, it seemed like it was a mundane explanation. And it was it was kind of not what I was expecting, I guess. So, again, it was like, even though I knew that that was a thing, for some reason, I didn't think it was like roughly half the stories. I thought it was like maybe one or two. Hmm. This one it definitely seems like, it seems like most of it's explained. I mean, I guess that this was when I, when I was thinking of two that are, are pretty much like non-ambiguous. I was thinking of this one. And one other one. That... Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess what I was saying with that is this one, it's always a possibility in Karnacki's mind until he looks at the yeah. uh, photograph negatives that it might yeah. be a ghost. Whereas the other one I was thinking about, that never enters the picture at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. With this one, like, there's still, like, the hint that something could be yeah. supernatural. Like, Karnacki's right. getting these weird premonitions, and it turns out it's, like, all in his head. He's he's just getting scared. But that happens. Yeah, it does. I mean, that, yeah, it does. Yeah. It's cool that, that he is vulnerable to those things, because he has seen a lot. Yeah. Right, mm-hmm. so, and he, as it says in one part, he asks questions and keep his eyes, keeps his eyes open. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's, he's not afraid of people laughing at him. There's that one part, he, he says that, where... He's kind of like, he's open to anything, even people who would like mock or dismiss certain things. Yes. Yes. Now, that's a cool thing about the, the Karnaki character. Definitely. Mm-hmm.
for my second pick. I, I thought it would be appropriate since we started our first episode looking at Hodgson with his sea stories, a couple of sea stories by him. So I wanted to talk about The Haunted Jarvie, which is one of the stories that is published after Hodgson's death. And it begins with the narrator, Dodgson, mentioning that it has been a number of months since he and the others have been invited to Karnaki's for dinner, which is followed by him receiving the next day a call from the detective. After their dinner, Karnaki opens by telling them that he had been on a trip on the Jarvie, an old sailing ship, which is owned by a friend of his named Captain Thompson. He knew from Thompson that the ship was strange, though he had never been able to learn any specifics. He spends the beginning of his time on the Jarvie, conducting a thorough examination of it, though finds nothing out of the ordinary about it, nor are there initially any odd incidents. Eventually, however, as he and Thompson are on deck a few weeks into the journey, Thompson points something out to Karnaki on the water, a shadow that appears to be moving closer to the ship. Soon, Karnaki and Thompson see four shadows, each in opposite directions, heading towards the ship. When they are near the ship, though, they thin out and disappear. While Karnaki is surprised by this, Thompson isn't, apparently having experienced this before. Karnaki tries to get more information from him, but the captain seems unable to express himself, though he doesn't seem afraid to do so. He's not afraid for himself. During the night, after a relative calm and with no warning, the wind begins to beat at the ship with abnormal strength. Although reluctant to risk his men's safety to take down the sails, Thompson eventually has them do so, which results in two men falling to their death, deaths, seeming to be thrown by some force onto the deck. After a service for the men the next day, Karnaki starts experimenting with some of his equipment that could help with the phenomena. He believes the cause of the men's death is attractive vibrations, and that he can attempt to counteract these with repellent vibrations. Getting in some more technobabble there. Yeah. This one definitely is a little bit more on the techno side of things than yes, most yeah. of the previous stories, which is cool. Yeah, I really like the technology in here, and we'll get to that after the conclusion of the story, but mm. yeah, really good use of it. Yes. And he plans to create these repellent vibrations using an apparatus of his on board the ship. In the evening, he and Thompson once again see the shadows on the water, and later another squall hits the ship. The wind passes, but afterwards, Karnaki sees a shadow on the deck below him, which Thompson claimed to have only seen once before, during a voyage where he lost half of the crew. Later, during their watch, the two see another shadow on the deck, which has movement in it, and starts expanding outward. The shadow grows to the point that the deck is no longer visible. Then it, too, dissipates like the ones on the water. After a week of these repeated events, Karnaki talks with Thompson about his experiments with vibrations, and they agree to test them out, using them throughout the night. The ship's hands are sent to their quarters before nightfall, and are asked to stay there until morning, no matter what happens. Karnaki advises the captain and his mates to go to their quarters for safety as well, but they all refuse, staying instead with Karnaki on deck. Yeah, that was sweet. Yeah, that was nice. Karnaki did say he was very appreciative of the of the company. 
Although they probably didn't want to be stuck below either, to be honest. Yeah. I can, I can imagine them, like, pounding on the hatches. Yeah. Like, although there were other men down there, apparently, and they padlocked mm. the hatch, so... <laughs> he sets up the electric pentacle around them and starts his vibrations. A mist begins to form, and thunderless lightning strikes far out, but around the ship. The ship also undulates, tilting from side to side, and is shaken, a pattern that occurs a number of times while the mist and lightning draws closer to the Jarvi. Karnaki and the others start having trouble breathing, and mounds, as Karnaki calls them, become visible through the fog, moving in a way that is mirrored by the ship's movements. Eventually, the ship begins to jerk to one side, gradually tilting further until the boat seems at the risk of being capsized. With this realization, Karnaki switches off his device. The ship rights itself, but a powerful wind once again hits the vessel, and by the next morning, a bad leak has sprung out. The crew and Karnaki are forced to abandon the Jarvi two days later, which now lies sunken at the bottom of the ocean. Karnaki explains to his friends that the ship was likely a focus, drawing the vibrations to itself the way a medium attracts spirits. He then concludes, bidding his friends good night. I wanted to include that one because I just, I always love the way Hodgson writes about sea stories. I, I like the way he... yeah. The atmosphere he manages to capture with that. Yeah, it's so good. He's so he's so awesome in the way he describes the sea stuff. That mm. I'm just not surprised that he has so many sea stories, and like that's kind of what he's. Besides House on the Borderland, maybe it's this. I don't know though. These these stories in general seem to be quite recognized, but it's the sea stories that are something really special. Mm. And some of that probably has to do with his own experience, right? Yeah, but. Um, yeah, I love this one. He feels really right at home here with the sea stuff. And mm-hmm. the mystery is just fascinating going in. And his technological solutions are really cool. And I really like the devices and apparatuses in this one, as it really does try to connect the spiritual realm with the technological realm, kind mm-hmm. of equating it with electromagnetism and the way that it functions with forces of attractors and repellents and all that. And the ship mm-hmm. is just kind of like a psychically charged magnet that attracts all kinds of weird stuff to it. So Karnaki has to basically build a spiritual degausser to <laughs> you know, clean it off. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which yeah. I thought was just so cool. And it was cool too because it didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that was interesting because, I mean, it was bad before, right? Like he was losing his men and he couldn't keep a crew because... People would hear about this and they'd be like, yeah, I'm not going to be on this ship anymore. So we'd always have to get a new crew, right? That, that this whole crew was new to him. But, like, despite all that, I mean, I don't know. Karnaki seems to have made it worse yeah. rather than better. And Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I did want to bring that up as, you know, we were mentioning earlier the way that Karnaki kind of fails or or sometimes can exacerbate a situation he's in. And I feel like this is a, a good example of that. Yeah, but he seems quite happy about it. Like maybe this that was needed because like the more that ship was on the sea, the more men would have like fallen out of the rigging and just not like, you know, and it's this old, the way he describes it a little bit too is like this old ship. It probably deserves to be retired anyway, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. kind of too bad that it had to go to the bottom of the ocean, but like, <laughs> You know, so be it, right? Yeah, he did mention after seeing that one shadow where he he said last time it took out half the crew when he saw that 
he does mention like, oh, I was thinking of scrapping this ship when we when we got back from this voyage. So it, yeah. it's not. Uh, it seems like yeah, it was it was its time to go. Anyways, it's time to go anyway. Yeah. And I really like the way he concludes this one, I think is really good, like before he ushers out of the guests. If you don't mind, Gretchen, I'm, I think I'd just like to read it. Yeah. So this is when the last, not the last like paragraph of the story, but before he ushers them out, as he always does, he says, To say more in a talk of this scope is useless. I'm more inclined to remind you of the glass, which will vibrate to a certain note struck upon a piano. And to silence all your worrying questions with that simple little unanswered question. What is electricity? When we've got that clear, it will be time to take the next step in a more dogmatic fashion. We are but speculating on the coast of a strange country of mystery. In this case, I think the next best step for you all will be home and bed. <laughs> Uh, that's Karnaki. <laughs> yeah. Karnaki in a nutshell. And it does tie in with the, I guess, some of the schools of thought in the engineering world at the time where people like Oliver Lodge and others were trying to build devices and apparatuses that can communicate or demonstrate existence of the spirit world. And... Mm. You know, I mean, people that do that today are typically written off and seen as quacks or frauds. Right, and but these maybe guys would... were pioneers, exactly. and they were actually interested in this. Yeah, right. And you know, honestly, in our in our exploration of science fiction in years to come, things like this will keep coming up. John Campbell was he, he believed in some weird stuff. Yeah, obviously, L. Ron Hubbard. Right, like, yeah, <laughs> that's a whole different conversation, I think. Yeah, I know, but but it's part of that that whole thing, yeah, right? right? So, according to the collected works, it was actually published in a magazine. It is posthumous, but we didn't really get into this too much. I, I was kind of I could have brought up earlier, maybe, but so six of these stories were published or uh, during his lifetime, and then the last three were posthumous. Now, two of them were not really published until 1947-48 with the intervention of August Derleth. But this one, The Haunted Jarvis, apparently was in Premier Magazine March 1929 mm. uh, before it ended up in the Arkham House edition of Ghostfinder from 1948 or whatever it was. And from what I read, in uh, there's there's some really good notes to the text in these volumes. And it, it kind of... Try, he tries... He does try to explain a lot about the source material and stuff. So apparently the other two were possibly revised by August Derleth. This one was revised by Hodgson's wife. So she apparently took whatever he wrote and submitted it. And the editor asked her to change a few things and she did. And then that's how it was published. According to that, it has an interesting history. This one, I don't know if any of it was, her contribution or how what the editor had asked her to change after the initial submission. But August Ehrlich not involved in this, apparently, but possibly with some editorial changes that Hodgson did not approach. But, it does feel very Hodgson. Like, I think it goes yeah. along yeah. with the rest of his body of work, even if it is rather unique within the Karnacki stories, as it's the only one that has the whole nautical theme. 
it does break from the formula from the first six in other ways that I think make it stand out a bit more, but it does feel, I guess, more connected to the first six and Hodgson's overall body of work than perhaps the other two posthumous stories do. Yeah. Yeah, and it, yeah, it does feel like Hodgson. As I was going to say, the, the story does remind me quite a bit of a derelict. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Like, this definitely feels very similar to that. Yeah. What do you guys think was actually going on with the... when he activated the attractor, uh, the repulsor? It was almost like a hand was toying with the ship. Mm-hmm. And, like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's really cool. It's a typical weird fiction thing. It actually, what it reminded me of was Jean Ray's The Mind Salter. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it reminded me of that you know, idea of these weird extra-dimensional forces at play that are never really explained and they wouldn't, we don't understand very well. And like, what was it that was being attracted to the ship? What actually happened when he turned on the machine? It didn't seem very good. It seemed like, <laughs> like it was making things a lot worse. And then, yeah, when he turned it off, the storm came in, and it was like the same kind of weird localized storm that had been happening every night yeah. when the shadows mm-hmm. showed up. But it was like worse than ever. Like they were really pissed now, almost. Yeah. Or they had accumulated because he had turned his device on, and he yeah. like prevented something from happening, maybe? I feel like it is something where he did exacerbate it. I definitely think that was his fault, <laughs> what happened with the ship. And I think... Perhaps what happened is he mentions, obviously, the the concept of vibrations is very crucial to this story. And he mentions that his contraption is supposed to make repellent vibrations, but perhaps yeah. it just added to the general vibrations that are the ship is focusing on. Right. Yeah. So I, I think the sentence you read earlier, JM, ties into it where he poses the question of, what is electricity? So this was still a question that was being asked in, well, I guess it's impossible to say what the precise date he wrote this was because it was published in the decades following his death and who knows who would have revised it when. But assuming this was written around like 1912, 1913 or so, yeah. I mean, it was still a open I think, I question. Think- it would have been before the the First World War, definitely. Yeah, right. It seems like he didn't really write a lot of fiction during that time. Yeah, so. and, and certainly the theories that are accepted as being the accepted model of physics in the scientific world were having practical applications at this time, as, as we see even in these stories with Karnacki using vacuum tubes. The model of physics that is currently accepted is that in nature, when a electric field exists, a magnetic field is there that runs perpendicular to the electric field. So if we have both the electric fields and the magnetic fields run perpendicular, what if there's a third dimension on top of that, like a spiritual or psychic field that is somehow related, but not the same thing, but connected to both electric and magnetic fields? So I think it's in a way significant that the storm and the nature of a lightning storm is different based on what Karnacki is doing. And it's very possible that Karnacki doesn't understand what he's doing with his apparatus and he's just pushing stuff out and kind of making the problem worse. But it does seem like he is perhaps affecting it in some way, either by electrical, magnetic, or whatever else his apparatus does 
playing around with those variables in some degree to affect the real world situation. Now, it doesn't work out in the situation. He's not able to master these forces, but he's able to certainly push them in a certain direction. Yes. I thought it was really cool the way he described the, like, the new electrical apparatus he had set up and the what, what did he, the, vibr- the vibrator and the trembler box and like how he was sort of probably a, a kind of picture like maybe they lashed him to the deck and he was like sitting by this control board and this sort of maniacal look in his eyes and the captain's like the captain of the ship's kind of turning over and the captain's looking at him going Turn it off! For God's sakes, turn it off! <laughs> I thought the captain was really cool. He's, like, very calm about everything. It's like, he has more knowledge than Karnaki in a way. Because he's seen all these things before. He doesn't really understand all that electrical, magnetism, spiritual force stuff. But he knows. He knows what the things look like, and he knows what the signs are. So... And and he's always like just he's standing sort of by Karnaki's shoulder sometimes, and Karnaki doesn't realize, and he's like <laughs> looking at something, and suddenly he'll hear this whisper in his ear, and it's like, it's them, you see, but wait, there'll be so much more yet. We better get the men below, and you know you can you kind of Karnaki is affected by the uncanniness of the situation again, I think, but it doesn't stop him from. Doing his weird experiments and, yeah, turning his machine on full blast <laughs> seems to maybe a bit of a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is my other favorite, definitely. This, mm. this, I really like, too, that it's set on the sea. I, I think it was good to change the format. Like, the, oh, my old castle has a weird problem. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of formula was getting a little bit like, yeah, let's try something else, right? Yeah, it's and, like, come, uh, come and check on my estates. You know, but this one has that different feeling to it and makes me want to read more of Hodgson's Sea Stories. I I definitely want to do that on my own. Yeah, there's a good number of them and they're, I haven't read too much of them, but definitely the novel The Ghost Pirates is one I really want to check out for sure. And there's, yeah, there's a lot of shorter sea stories as well that he wrote. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's definitely a feel that was notable for him and he makes it really authentic and exciting and all the correct terminology is there and everything you bet. And like, not only that, like the, the sea characters seem to come to life in a way that some of the, the domestic urban British, like guys hanging out in their smoking rooms and with their pipes and stuff don't always seem to, mm-hmm. I think. He's definitely very good at the nautical Gothic. Yeah. yeah. This one seems to have gotten around a bit, like in a way that perhaps, the next two that were published not till the 40s didn't like i i don't know again i didn't really look into the history of the magazine so i don't know how popular premier magazine was but it's also interesting to think like how much of this was how much revision happened we don't really know but it like like you guys said it does really seem like hodgson yeah and i get the sense that the premier magazine was not widely distributed because the forgotten futures does not mentioned it at all, and it lists the yeah. first publication date as the anthology in 48, and it seems really thorough for all the other stories of, like, the differences and stuff, mm-hmm. so I wonder if that magazine was, like, a recent rediscovery or something like that. Huh. Yeah, I'm, I'm really not sure. All I know about it is the listing there, and 
that it's mentioned that his wife may have revised the story to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there are some mysteries that we uncover when we do the Chrononauts podcast. And <laughs> it's interesting sometimes. Just questions of authorship, questions of origins, things like that. It's fun, but yeah, we didn't really look into those things. And I'm sure these kind of mysteries will come up again. But... Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, we've had a whole bunch already so far for oh yeah far more obscure authors so yes. <laughs> yeah we still don't know who wrote simsonia but we think or the air battle or some of the other ones we've covered so yeah. yeah a lot of author mysteries out there indeed indeed well that's not the next one i'm going to talk about but there is a story that involves a mystery around a publication of a book but right. we'll see if that one comes up but yeah, I don't I don't really have anything else to add about this other than that this is one of the most awesome ones. Yeah. One of the greatest atmospheres of the whole bunch. And the different setting really, really uh, helps. And it just kind of, it speaks to the fact that Karnaki continues into the present day. People are still writing these stories. I didn't get to, I didn't get much of a chance to read, besides the Doctor Who crossover, I didn't get much of a chance to read a lot of the other stuff. But one, mm-hmm. the one that I did read, William Michael's Captain Galt's Nemesis, is a sea story. And it's pretty effective too. It also involves a ship like the Jarvie that's starting to develop a very bad reputation because of something in the cargo hold that no one wants to go anywhere near. And it's pretty good. I mean, uh, we'll talk more about some of the addendum material later, but William Michael has written several volumes of Karnaki stories. He actually has like three, at least three volumes of Karnaki stories, all written in the 21st century. And judging by that story, he's really good at it. Some of these modern interpretations of, of older works and stuff, like, I, I'm i a little hesitant. You know, I, like, I always feel this kind of, yeah, why would you do that? It's not authentic. It's not, like, of its time. It doesn't, it doesn't have the same feeling. I think he is probably influenced by a little bit more what, what's come around since then in terms of horror and fantasy and stuff. But it still comes across really authentically of the period and... The vibe is really cool, so I was really impressed with that. I would I would happily read more of his Karnaki stories. Another author, Brendan Barrows, published a full volume of Karnaki stories. We mentioned the new adventures of Karnaki earlier, so it's a pretty common thing, and it's it's just really interesting that people are still writing about him. And I kind of feel like because there aren't that many stories, there is kind of an opportunity to play with the formula. I mean, a part of me now wants to write my own Karnaki story after reading all these. I kind of feel like it would be fun. Yeah. Next episode, all three of us will present our own Karnaki stories. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just read my made-up comeback fanfiction. <laughs> Karnaki fanfiction. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs>
House Among the Laurels is another Irish yarn. This one taking place just outside the village of Corrington in the west of Ireland. Sounds like Creighton, doesn't it? Karnaki has a friend named Wentworth, who's just somehow come into possession or bought a large estate with a big house on it. This house, surrounded by a mass of laurel bushes, has a bad reputation. Wentworth soon discovers this, and that no one will go near or stay on the place. The place, Gannington Manor, needs a lot of work, and has been neglected for ages. The old estate agent is of the opinion that they should just tear down the house. Wentworth is not willing to do this, for obvious reasons. The place used to be called Landru Castle, and of course it's haunted. Recent things have happened, too. Two vagrants died there and are under mysterious circumstances within the last seven years. You would think vagrants would be the first to know of a place's weird reputation, but actually this is perhaps the one thing that belies Karnaki's niceness is that he's sort of pretty dismissive of these two guys that apparently died there. He's kind of like, yeah, well, they were tramps. They were going to die anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this whole story leaves a negative taste in my mouth, I have to be honest with you. This is my least favorite out of the nine. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it was mine, but I can understand that. I can understand that. It was a little bit, he's a little bit dismissive of that. But anyway, Wentworth is determined to spend the night there and invalidate the tale of the haunting, much to the distress of the agent and the innkeeper. The villagers seem sweetly worried about Wentworth, and one of them even offers his large dog to keep him company. But none of them will go near the castle at night. Wentworth, feeling a bit nervous now himself, decides to propose that they make a night of it, bring a whole lot of supplies, including alcohol, food, and lots of candles, and stuff to build the fire, and hang out overnight. The men are virtually amenable to this, Probably the whiskey, most of all. And the innkeeper offers more words of caution. He says to keep the door wide open and watch for the blood drip. And this is kind of funny, like almost even more so than the bits from the Six Sad Manuscript. The dialect of the Irish people in this story is hilariously incomprehensible sometimes. Like it's you're trying to figure it out, and it's just yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't try to read any of that. But I will say, the blood drip is a significant thing in this story. So reminds me of Wuthering Heights. There are those times when it's like uh, incomprehensible to understand. Like you don't understand unless you try to read it out. What a character is saying. Joseph's Northern dialect. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh. Yeah, I did the audiobook of that, oh. I don't know, last year or so, and it definitely makes some of the difficulty a little bit less for those passages. Mm. I need to listen to that. I'd completely forgotten about that, how, how much that was <laughs> interesting. Yeah, I don't know, I thought it was amusing, like, in here. I, I kind of liked that, I kind of liked that. It was it was obviously exaggerated, but I don't know sometimes about some of these pronunciations and how you're supposed to do it, so I won't, but... yeah. But when you see the blood drip, the end is nigh, and you must flee. So, the castle has been spoiled by the spill of innocent blood, and we get, in unspeakable dialect, the story of Black Mick, and how he killed the O'Haras in their sleep, 
while pretending to be their friend. Now, 40 men gather in the big hall with a huge fire, candles all around, and there's whiskey and talk, and everyone seems cheerful and chill. One bold guy even yells at the ghosts to show themselves. This is a bad move. The big entrance door slowly and quietly swings shut, and the dog starts barking furiously and running toward one of the many doors, cowering after Wentworth fires his gun uselessly. All the inner doors start to swing open. Then the candles go out. Well, the men are about as useless as the dog at this point. Then, oh no, the blood to the rip! Splashing all over them, and they bolt for the exit, which slams behind them, leaving the poor dog inside. The next day, Wentworth sends for Karnaki. The ghost finder arrives promptly, and they waste no time in heading for the castle. The big dog is in the entrance hall, its neck broken. Nothing else appears touched from the gathering the previous night. Commence the thorough examination of the big demand, Karnaki style. It lasts for several weeks, during which time he finds nothing significant. So, time to spend a night in the house. Wentworth is persuaded to be there, and Karnaki even obtains the services of six policemen from a neighboring town. How cool they could do this! Requisition the police into his service! Kind of the opposite of the way you would expect it to be nowadays. Yeah, the, so, whole, the whole thing with the police, I also, it just didn't work for me. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I thought it was, I mean, it served what it needed to serve. I didn't think it was right or wrong, but the thing is, it was just kind of funny that he pointed out they were off duty, so he was paying them. Yeah, right. right. Uh, once again, the party is all kitted out, and this time, there are two dogs to be used as canaries, or whatever. And on with the usual door seals. The dogs are tied up at the end of the hall and the corner where the doors are. And everyone has to stay in the pentacle, which is within a chalk circle. And a huge lighted circular burial of 198 candles. There's also hair involved somehow, threaded with silver, which is real, I assume. And it's all very intricate. The Electric Pentacle is explained again, and there's a wonderful bit of technobabble that is apparently the name of a scientific paper by, by the name of one Professor Garner. Astaro vibrations compared with Matero involuted vibrations below the 6 billion limit. <laughs> <laughs> a bit more of a, a mouthful than the Sigsund Manuscript. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the six-cent manuscript is much easier to read. <laughs> I mean, it is interesting how people write like fan fiction versions of the occult texts, but I would like to see a fan version of some of these mathematical and scientific texts that he's yeah. quoting here. Oh yeah, well, I mean, in Lovecraft we get there is something that claims to be the Necronomicon, right? Right, exactly, yeah. These kind of things, though, like it's just getting glimpses of the book make it more exciting yeah, no right? for sure mm-hmm. kind of you imagine what's in the book and i really like the bits from the six cent manuscript this sounds like a really interesting work yeah. you know i'd like to know what's in the six cent manuscript but at the same time imagining what's there is even cooler 
but there are eight men, including Karnaki, and they all sit at the compass points. And Karnaki makes the sign of the Samao ritual. You have to wonder what the gruff policemen think of all this. Probably mocking it a little bit. But after a while, there's a sudden noise and everyone is alert. The hook holding the door is raised without any visible handling. And it shuts and the dogs are not happy about anything. Nor are the men. Karnaki orders that no one leave the defense. The dogs don't seem right lying there shivering as much agonizing time passes. Finally, the candles start going out. And there's a lot of them, so it takes a while. But Karnaki manages to get a shot in with his camera at this point. There doesn't seem to be a pattern to the extinguishment, but it gets the fire too. The great fire is out. And he says, The steadfast intention to make a darkness was horrible. And I really like that passage. In the darkness, the sound of the breaking door seals is audible, and Karnaki gets in a picture. The blood drip commences. Can the barriers save them? No, apparently not. One of the dogs has his neck audibly and sickeningly broken. A man bolts, and the rest soon follow. Stuff is sent flying, and the precious electric pentagram is smashed. They make it back to the inn after a while. Karnaki develops his picks. There are three, and the first one, which he took before the candles went out when they heard the hook being raised from the door, gives him the clue he needs. He puts rubber clogs over his shoes and goes out, walking hard to make it back to the castle. Instead of going through the main gate, he climbs a wall and around through a back window. There are several well-dressed men in the hall. They are talking and laughing. Indeed, Konaki sees that they are mocking his barriers and defenses. He feels like a fool. The remaining dog still lives, but not for long. They break the neck of the seemingly drugged animal with a rope and a big stout stick. The man says to shift the wires, and they pass through a little doorway in the stairwell after raising a step on what must be a hidden mechanism. So, I don't know, I had a hard time picturing how all this worked. Yeah. I don't know about you guys. (laughs) Like, he was trying to explain it, and I... Kind of get it a little bit, but I'm just like, I can't picture... It's very elaborate, like... Yeah, yeah it's very elaborate, almost, like, too yeah. elaborate, you know? Yeah. It's just, I don't really know how this how this worked. But the police think he's onto some kind of political gang. I don't know what they are, Fiends, Irish independence, probably, that, that was definitely a thing at the time, so I'm guessing it, it was probably that. It's not really gone into, but they've been using the house as a gathering place, and they don't want to give it up, so are playing up the legend. They have some secret entrances, like a tunnel from a well entrance into a stairwell. And Karnaki doesn't know how they did all the candles. Speculates that it might be carbonic acid or something like that. He's really not sure. They rigged the gate with a bell and used a fine wire to take the hook from the hasp to shut the entrance from the ceiling. Karnaki somewhat cruelly dismisses the tramps who died. They would have died anyway. Maybe natural causes. So, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, they catch the bad guys. There's a bit of a uh, situation with Karnaki almost getting killed. 
but he manages to evade that. But it was it was a bit of a tense thing for a while there, and there was kind of a sense that these men will stop at nothing. But yeah, this is this is definitely the most non supernatural, most like kind of oh, it's just some weird like some angry guys who want to use the place. Like it's it's definitely not altogether satisfying in that sense. Like uh, we don't know anything about these people or what they want or how they feel uh, or anything like that. And it's kind of like cool in theory that they would know about all this stuff and want to use the legend like there is potential there for something really good but i just think maybe the story is too short to cover anything like that and we're just getting again it's a story by karnaki him telling us the story and that's fine like that's that's the format that we love at this point and i love it i really enjoyed reading this story but i also yeah like it was a little bit I don't know, not as satisfying as some of the other ones. Definitely, like, like the Horse of the Invisible, it's a little bit like, you know, that's, I kind of want a little bit more than that, I guess, a little bit. But I still enjoyed a lot of the atmosphere of it, the sense before he really knew what was going on was very dreadful, and I like the way he handles the fact that what he finds out what's really happening how he feels about it is very conveyed whereas like he feels like he's been fooled and he's very hurt by that it's like obviously he kind of even says well i've pretty much solved the case as i wanted to like it's solved now and i don't have anything more to do with it you know he's kind of like disgusted by the whole thing and i don't know i get that like what kind of assholes would do yeah that? right yeah <laughs> right so yeah manufacturing the blood drip. Yeah, I don't know. This one didn't really work for me. I thought it was kind of unsatisfying and needlessly cruel to the animals, and it kind of left a foul taste in my mouth. This was the second one I read, uh, as I read it in publication order. Um, So it kind of delayed me from reading the next ones in succession. But yeah, I mean, I guess there was some stuff that I did like about it. Some of the atmosphere is good. And, of course, the references to the arcane texts and all that is always fun. But, I don't know. This one didn't come together in ways that some of the others did for me. Yeah. I also read this as my second story, reading in the publication order. And I do feel like, especially since it is next to, like, in between Gateway of the Monster and the Whistling Room, this one kind of is, like, it, it doesn't stand out as much because you also... It's also placed between those two stories, which are really great. But yeah, I, I didn't think it was as... It didn't stand out to me, I guess, in is my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I get that. I don't know. I, I, I liked I liked the atmosphere of it. But yeah, I know what you mean. I think that there were, there were certain things about it that I liked. Like, I liked the comradely aspect of it. I do like the idea of this, like, haunted house party. <laughs> everyone's yeah. just yeah. joined together that's pretty fun they are boozing a lot exactly. too and i thought it would have been kind of funny if that was the explanation for the ghosts is all right well they're just <laughs> passing around the whiskey too much and yeah <laughs> <laughs> everyone just uh, had yeah. a bit too much to drink yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but again that seems to be you know a common thing now where i mean you get a bunch of people together and they're like yeah we're all, we're all gonna hang out here and witness the haunting and there's like six of us and, and all throughout the night you know we get to dissect the characters of one another as, as everything gets revealed and you know it's kind of like haunting of hill house sort mm-hmm. of 
vibe, right? Like a little bit. And that this is like a bunch of Irish guys and that are hanging out and drinking whiskey. And I don't know. I just, I, I kind of liked the the vibe of it. I like the atmosphere of it. I agree that the, 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 the killing three dogs was maybe a bit excessive. And at this point I was like kind of thinking, is this going to happen in every story? <laughs> He's going to work his way up to an elephant or a whale by the last one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. In Horse of the Invisible, there, there's actually a horse that's killed. Yeah, I was actually kind of surprised he didn't take it there with that one. Yeah, but, uh, you know. yeah I know. <laughs> yeah, it's a strange track record when it's, when you start with Gateway and then go into this one. It is kind of like, oh, are we setting a precedent for, for animal death here? Yeah, because it's the first two that come out of pretty strong right out the bat. Maybe yeah. the editor of The Idler told him to tone it back a little bit because they want a nice idle read rather than this... I don't know. <laughs> That's why they had to include the apology. Yeah, right, exactly. In, uh, for the whistling room. Maybe, I mean, it's hard to say. He did kill He did kill two dogs and a cat in the House of the Borderland as well, mm-hmm. so. It just seemed less cruel in House of the Borderland, though. I don't know. It, this one just seemed like. Maybe because it carries more emotional weight. I guess so, yeah. Yeah. The idea of these guys sitting around with the dogs there, like, it was very comfortable and nice. Obviously, like when it got shattered, it was extra painful, you know. And I don't know. I I liked it, but everything everything you said is true. Like it's it is it is kind of lesser in a way. And I, this is kind of the one that made me kind of say after reading that and think of the invisible, kind of led me to say, yeah, I'm not really sure that I like the non supernatural ones as much. Mm-hmm. On rereading, I did kind of I, I did kind of change my tune a little bit. I think I just kind of just worked on the positive aspect of it and just kind of went, yeah, it's okay. I mean, it, maybe, yeah, it's not as good, but I, I like the atmosphere of it and I like the telling of it. So I think that counts for a lot. Yeah. I think like <laughs> if this had been a production of the rivals of Sherlock Holmes, this would have not been any good, but <laughs> as a Karnaki story, it's fine. The Searcher of the End House or The Find are not on either of your lists? No. No. Okay. So these are the other stories. Interesting that neither of us included Searcher. This is supposed to be an early Karnaki adventure. Yeah. This one I like better than the one we just talked about. And it is one of the non-supernatural ones. Right. And... I don't know. It was okay overall, but the one element I really did like about it that he doesn't really go into a lot is the whole landlord tenants rights thing. Like he yeah. goes into the whole landlord being an asshole kind of As sort of taken <laughs> for granted. And like, I think from like a legal standpoint, yeah, the landlord should be responsible for a paranormal maintenance job. 
You know, yeah. why should the tenant have to deal with that? I mean, you own the property, you know. <laughs> yeah, he didn't kind of come across as a bit of a dick. <laughs> the thing is, though, like, even now, landlord-tenant things are a thorny issue in a lot of places. I'm pretty lucky where I am. There's a pretty pretty strict rules and things like that that the landlords are supposed to follow, although they recently got rid of rent control, thanks uh, conservative Ontario government. But in general, it's not... The tenants are protected up to a point, but I definitely felt like, yeah, things must have been different in 1910. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that he's living with his mother and she's kind of a part of the whole thing. <laughs> like, I mean, she's not really a major character. She doesn't do much, but it's just kind of like, this is an interesting situation. It's different. It feels definitely like, yeah, this is a younger Karnaki. Doesn't quite know the ropes yet. It's kind of interesting that they put that in here. I think I would have kind of preferred if Hodgson had done this with a supernatural story. Like having him be introduced to that kind of thing before he built something like the Electric Pentacle. And like, yeah. he doesn't really know a lot about it. Even more bungling his way through, perhaps. But yeah, this this ends up, again, being another guy kind of playing a weird trick. And it's kind of, I don't know. <laughs> it's a little silly. They don't seem to mind all that much. Like, they, they seem kind of like, oh, yeah, we'll help this guy out. He's like all messed up and dirty now. And like, just, I don't know. It was, it was, it was a fun story, but that wasn't too much... There wasn't too much to it that I found that memorable. Mm. It's like, again, you know, it's written with the usual kind of Hodgson verve about the uncanny, which she's really good at. And mm. that aspect of it worked well. But I don't know. It was not one that stood out to me, even as much as The House in the Laurels. The, the House in the Laurels I liked for a couple of reasons, I think more than this one. But yeah. Hodgson's writing still sort of carries it through. Yeah, I said that House on the Laurels didn't stand out as much to me. And I still think, like you were saying, Jam, I like the I like the atmosphere of it. I like the that kind of, you said, like the community aspect of it in some parts. But this yeah. one didn't have it as much that kind of interested me in a way that made me want to choose it to, to talk about. I don't think there's as much I have to say about this one. I guess the other thing I liked about this is he describes the presence of like a really gross smell yeah and i don't know what it is about stories like horror stories or whatever but when they go into the olfactory nature of horror i think it's an interesting angle to take Mm. yeah for sure and it's something that most people don't really understand like like i have a hard time describing smells myself like i I can't really It's, it's hard it's kind of like hard to be as visceral with scent i think than like some of the other senses especially in just the nature of human smell is it's such a blunted sense compared to some of the other animals who rely on it for getting around like a dog's sense of smell versus ours it's just orders of magnitude different mm-hmm. yeah it's really interesting to think about too yeah yeah how, how much more sensitive some creatures are and I don't know, I think I was hoping this one would be, like, I was kind of disappointed at the nature of the smell. Like, it just some, it was some old piece of meat. Like, yeah, like some mutton, like, oh, some old mutton. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
This is a whole maggoty meat, right? Like, great. Yeah, very proud of the fact that it dropped some maggots, and he didn't even mean for that to happen, and he was like, oh, that's that's great, that that featured right into my plan. Yeah. Oh, that bit did kind of remind me of, like, some weird Italian horror movie or something like that, <laughs> yeah. like the maggot crawling. It's yeah. like, oh, just weird. Yeah. The kind of non-supernatural explanation didn't. Didn't entirely please me at first, I think. It's silly. It's it's very silly. And, you know, I, I appreciate the lengths this guy will go to to get his house back, but uh, I don't know. I mean, I think in the process he would have probably drown himself rather than get anything practical done. Yeah, yeah. talk about the find then that's, that's yeah. kind of an interesting one yeah so searcher of the end house was his last publication in the idler so number five whereas the find was another one of his posthumous stories so this one was first published in i don't know if it was after or before the hog it might have been around the same time but it's by far the shortest of the karnaki stories and it's just really a very basic book mystery and i don't know this is short and it's very simple and there's absolutely no hint of the supernatural here but as a librarian i love a good book mystery and yeah as someone who wants to become a librarian i did enjoy this one quite a bit it's it's fun you know like there's a fake book maybe and a book auction and who's gonna get all this money is it a forgery turns out yes it is but how? And Karnacki is the one to find that out. And there's no electric pentacle here. There's no garlic or anything yeah. like that. It's basically just a straightforward mystery that I think if the rivals of Sherlock Holmes were to adapt any of his stories, it it would have been this one because it feels more in touch with the tone and vibe of like a Sherlock Holmes traditional yeah. detective story. There's not a lot to say about it because it is so short. I don't know how much of it he intended to be used for a longer story before he died. Yeah, so there's another edition in that volume four of the collected works, which includes a lot of the weird, like, truncated editions and different things. There is actually a version of this called the Dumpley Acrostics, and it's a very, even more basic rundown of this that does not mention Karnaki. Yeah. It just, like, starts out... I have a sideline in book. I can't remember what he says, but it, it's very basic. And it's it doesn't even include, like, the thing that I kind of liked most about this was the description of what the book actually was and who it was for. This is a book for Queen Elizabeth I and is a book that was published only in one copy for her, right? And it's called The Dumbling Caustics, and it's a book of Balmos, as I believe they say. And it's book of jokes and weird puns and 
clever things to say. <laughs> so it's something that would only appeal to a person of high court. Yeah. And one copy for one person. Yeah. I enjoyed it. I mean, it was, it almost felt like a trial run for a completely different character. Yeah. The Karnaki thing did feel like an afterthought. And, yeah. and it might well have been. I mean, we're not really sure exactly how much of these last two stories are Hodgson and how much of them are some other editor. So the Dumpley was definitely all Hodgson. And that was yeah. like, and it's got the basic blueprints of this story. It just lacks a few of those elements. I don't know if that necessarily means. So the culprit that we're going to be talking about for the next bit is August Dermoth. Yeah. And he seems to have come into possession of these two and perhaps done a bit of editorial work. Maybe a lot. Yeah, for this one, I could definitely see the frame, like the Karnacki frame of the beginning of him assembling the party and then dismissing everybody at the end yeah. as being added later. But I definitely think the core of the story is Hodson, perhaps intended yeah. to be not a Karnacki story, perhaps intended to be a Karnacki story. You know, who knows? Sam Moskowitz says that this exists yeah. as a manuscript. Yeah. So I think it's pretty, it's pretty certain that it is... Most, if not all, Hodgson. The next one, the hog, not so sure. Yeah, it's certainly so short where it could very plausibly be all Hodgson. Right. But if he actually says this exists as a manuscript, then I think we should take his word for it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the description of the book is a book of Beaumont. Like, somehow... I don't know. I feel I feel that's authentic. I feel like that. Even though it's not in the weird doubly acrostics thing, it feels like it's probably real. So, there's real Hodgson, most likely. And I enjoyed, yeah, I enjoyed the kind of bibliophile mystery aspect. And we've certainly touched on the authorship mysteries of these rare books and you know, book mysteries before on the yes. podcast. And I've intentionally tried to avoid contact with the rare book world as much as possible not because the <laughs> books themselves are not interesting or the prices are too far-fetched but the, the people prices, involved yes. with rare books are just punishing to deal with like absolutely oh, awful wow. um <laughs> That's it is, terrible. it's yeah it's it's even worse than records like not not a good scene to be into oh man That's... yeah i mean so, some of the titles we've covered on the podcast before i'm sure go for some serious money like if you were to buy an original printing of arctic or whatever uh, despite the fact that it's a very strange work i think it would set you back a fair amount yeah not, not a lot of them were printed like it's a very niche publication and the only people that would want to buy it are people who are gonna pay money for it same with the air battle i think only one copy is known to exist outside of the british library wow it's yeah. just kind of interesting how even something as recent as the 1800s and in like genre fiction you're dealing with these cases of less than five copies known to exist or something like that never mind some medieval renaissance manuscript intended for queen elizabeth or or, or whatever yeah it was interesting and it was it seemed i mean i don't really know a lot about forgery and stuff like that but it seemed clever what the, the crook was doing there and he was the one that actually summoned Kardaki in the first place because he wanted to have the validation, I guess, and he thought he right. was cleverer than him. So, <laughs> and again, it seemed to be somebody that Karnaki liked and respected. 
which was interesting, you know, like Kardaki liked this guy and he pulled, he tried to pull the wool over his eyes, right? So. guess we got to talk about the hog so this one is an interesting one it's the longest of all the karnaki stories by far by far it was published in weird tales in 1947 january of 1947 yep yeah and issued the year later in the arkham house subsidiary it's the first karnaki anthology right after the, the after the original one yeah, but it was it was the reprint by, but it wasn't by Arkham House. It was by like their own by Arkham House. But it was Mycroft and Moran, the Mycroft and Moran reprinting of the Karnaki, the Ghostfinder book, included these two stories, and it included the Hog, which was based on its publication in Weird Tales. Now, August Derleth supposedly found these two stories. Sam Moskowitz, who was the first real biographer of Hodgson did locate the find as a manuscript, but not this one. However, and apparently in one of Hodgson's letters, he does refer to having written this. Now, how much was actually by him and how much was by Durleth? It's hard to say, but a lot of this story reads like a Durleth pastiche to me. This is the man who wrote many pastiches of Lovecraft stories, that he claimed were collaborations that were really based on just a couple of notes that Lovecraft wrote. Around the same time, he also passed off a story that was claimed to be by Joseph Sheraton Lethanu and was actually an August Durla story. He wrote pastiches of Sherlock Holmes. He seemed to know what people would want, what fans would want, and he capitalized on that, and he seems to have been a person who was very motivated motivated by capital and being able to kind of milk whatever he thought would make him a little... I don't want to speak too ill of somebody who's long dead, but it just seems like he doesn't have a very good reputation in this field, and possibly for good reason. The things that he did with like Lovecraft kind of reflect... How I feel this story goes. He kind of tried to demythologize a lot of things, demystify things, make the elder beings like very clearly dualistic, good and evil, kind of, uh, you know, like there's the evil side of the old ones, but there's also the good guys that can help you out if you do the right things, right? And they're, I don't know, it just, this one, it's about a guy who comes to Karnaki, is recommended by his physician. He seems to be experiencing some kind of psychic weirdness. Whenever he goes to sleep, he ends up in this arena where he hears the the sound of the great hog. And it's like it's trying to pull him into the pit. And it's pretty much House of the Borderland, which is why I'm not really summarizing it like I normally do at great length. 
Yeah, basically the entire story is him falling into the pit and an ominous presence of a hog all around him and weird stuff breaking through weird barriers and him weirdly changing his weird positions through this portal. (laughs) There's almost like nothing to summarize here. There's, yeah, I mean, I mean, if we hadn't done House in the Borderland, maybe I would bother, but it just seems like that would belittle that book. Like, it just seems so... I, I don't understand why Hodgson would revisit that in that way. Like, I just don't... I mean, it's a cool concept. It's it's. There's a lot of really cool imagery in the story. I, I like a lot of what I see here, but it just seems... I don't know. It seems like fan fiction. <laughs> yeah. I it liked... Does. Yeah, and... I mean, I liked certain aspects. I liked the idea, like, it, it, there's a lot of talk about it's strangely intimate, you know, like Karnaki is holding this guy and he's like holding him in his arms and he's like, they're sort of grunting and, and acting pig-like. And it's just like, it's, it's sort of weird and cool. And I don't know. I like certain aspects of it. I like the weirdness of it, but there were certain things about it that were very strange. Like he refers to a lot of cases just as, Hodgson does in all the other stories. Karnaki refers to a lot of cases, but they're all cases that we've read about. In all the other stories, all the cases that are referred to are ones that we don't know about, which is way more interesting, right? Here, it's like, oh, do you remember the Gateway of the Monster? It was like that one. I don't know. It's just, He refers to the Haunted Jarvis, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those two right. cases, and, and he also does make reference to that Black Veil case, the one that we don't see but is referred to ah. multiple times. Yeah. So it's okay. it's sort of like yeah, I'll ref- I'll reference a case that we haven't seen, but it's one that I've mentioned before in these stories. And even yeah, like it does feel very like with that, it feels it feels like fan service, and it feels like fan service to be like, well, what are two of the major things that Hodgson created? Karnaki and House on the Borderland. So let's just mash the two together. Yeah. Yeah. So in a lot of the regular Karnaki stories, as we've kind of observed before, Karnaki's always kind of looking at his guests, you know, kind of going, do you get it? Am I making myself understood? Do you know what I mean? He's saying that, and he says that ever so often, but he doesn't overdo it. And I find that in this one, he overdoes it. Like, he kind of... It's too much, right? Like, it's like, this is somebody else who's saying, this is what Karnaki says in a lot of his story. So I have to put it here, and I have to put it here a lot. It, it felt like that to me. Like, it was it was just, it was perfectly done in the other stories, and I appreciated it. Like, that Sam Gaffin that we were talking about earlier, the way he puts it is, he thought it was condescending. But I think both of us thought it was more like, yeah, you know, Am I communicating effectively? Am I? Do I really bring across the way I was feeling, I wonder? It seemed respectful of his audience, not the other way around. More like for clarification purposes than... Yeah, and, and whereas here, it's like overdone. It's overdone. Overcooked. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Even as second-rate fan fiction, if we're giving it the least charitable interpretation, and I don't mind doing that, but even as second-rate fan fiction, I love this, and it's so cool. The weird portals, the weird lights, the, all, all the stuff that happens. Yeah, sure, it could be 
derelict knocking off House on the Borderlands and the great passages <laughs> there. And I think you yeah. could easily draw comparisons from one to the other where there's pretty direct links between the two. And it does seem like that is a very plausible explanation of what's happening here. But, you know, reading this last out of all the nine stories, it just feels like such a refreshing and welcome break from the other eight. And not that I didn't enjoy the other eight. It's just this one deviates so much from the formula, even more so than the Haunted Jarvay and the Find, mm-hmm. that it, it just kind of, it, it felt very welcome to me. And it's definitely not as good as House on the Borderland, by any means. But I certainly enjoyed it a lot. And the just really unsettling imagery of like a ever-present hog just kind of like around you, not only physically and spatially, but like, intradimensionally i think he captures well whether the he is a hodgson or a durleth it almost doesn't matter to me i i thought the end result was effective enough where yeah i i, I could definitely say that i enjoyed this one yeah this is this is one of the first ones that i read so i do have a special feeling for it like coming to it last now this time was the first time i came to it like that and I felt, I guess, a little less inclined to like it than I did the first time this time. Because the first time, I think I read it early on because I saw the title and I just kind of thought, oh, what's this? Maybe it maybe it has something to do with House on the Borderland. And I kind of thought, oh, maybe he answers some questions, right? Mm-hmm. And he does. It's sort of obvious, I guess. Like, it's a little bit, I don't know. It's like, it, it really isn't as good as House on the Borderland. And I, I like some of the imagery and I like the atmosphere and I like, it's weird because I remembered it very differently for some reason, I guess, because it'd been a long time since I read it. I remembered the explanation at the end being a lot longer, like the way he was talking to his guests about what might've actually been happening. I remember that being even longer than the, the whole bit inside the pentacle where they were like, it was him and Baines. I remember the the second half being even longer. And when I read it, it wasn't like that. And I was like, okay, that's cool. I, I like that more, I guess, a little bit. But I have very mixed feelings about it, basically. like For every good thing about it, there's something that I, doesn't quite work for me. But it's, it's interesting because it does feel like it might be informed by some later stuff, too. Like, it does feel more science fiction than any of the other stories, too. I don't know if you guys thought so. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. There's a whole new set of apparatus that Karnaki's using. Mm. He's got like a room in his house that's like a really big, spacious laboratory where he can set up all kinds of stuff. And he's like set up all kinds of stuff around this guy. And I don't know. I I liked the whole thing about sleep as well. Like Like every time he goes to sleep, he goes to this weird place. And of course, he has to sleep. Right? Like everybody has to sleep and just rewatch Planet of the Vampires. And, you know, it's just <laughs> like, yes, yeah, like whenever they go to sleep, their minds are taken over by the aliens. So here it's like whenever Baines goes to sleep, he ends up in this place. He hears the call of the hog and he cannot help but obey. And these things are trying to pull him into the pit. And Karnaki <laughs> feels the pit uh, encroaching. And, and at one point, they tried to drag him in as well. Yeah, this is definitely the story where Karnaki is in the most physical danger out of yeah. all of them. 
<laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I feel like 75% of the story is him trying to pull himself out of this, yeah. like, weird interdimensional pit. Yeah, it's it's almost like part of it is like, I have to save myself, let alone Bane's. Where it, it starts out where it's, it's sort of like, I have to help this one man get over this thing. But now it's like, I have to, it's I'm fighting for my own life. And he feels yeah. like he has to shoot Bane's in the head, like, several yeah. times throughout the course of the story. Yeah. And like... At one point, he's even, like, stopped by some supernatural force from doing so. Yeah. Yeah. And again, something intercedes. Because it's like, it would be better to die, to kill Banes and then myself. Yeah, right. Than to have whatever would happen, happen. If this thing gets him, he'll be damned for eternity, basically. Mm. He he will be... I don't know, like, it just kind of... The way he shows it is interesting. It's like, he's just vulnerable, like, his the barriers around his soul or whatever or his spirit that most people have are like not quite there i don't know it was neat because he showed like he kind of has a lot of almost like affection for this person he really wants to help him and he feels bad but he also almost treats him like a child or something like that holding him in his arms and like trying to protect him from this terrible thing and I don't know. It was pretty effective, I have to say. And there's more stuff from the Six Hand Manuscript there. It's written a little bit differently, though. It feels more like the Necronomicon. It feels more like somebody who read Lovecraft and wanted to create the... I don't know. I don't know. It's Here's the thing. We just don't know, and we're really speculating. But I feel a lot of Darleth in this. I feel... I don't know. I feel like this was maybe a lot of his work. And who knows if it was just an outline by Hodgson or where he got this. Like, And this is something that we would really have to dig into extensively if we wanted to really do a lot more research. Maybe we could find out, you know, but it's just, I don't know. Yeah. The way the six sand comes across is different. It's a longer passage. The archaic phrasing is a little bit different. He uses Y-E instead of T-H-E-E. Which, again, is exactly how the Simon Necronomicon reads from the 70s, right? So that's, that's like, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, Hodgson really liked Middle English. That's kind yeah. of a hard thing to replicate unless you're, like, really deep into that world. Another yeah. thing that stuck out to me, which is possibly unintentional, it's certainly very minor. So I read this story in Weird Tales. Oh. And in the paragraph formatting of Weird Tales... You get the following line. So, I stared at them as a child stares out from a fast train at a quickly passing night landscape, oddly hit by the furnaces of unknown industries. You wouldn't get this in the anthology or any of the subsequent reprintings, but in the Weird Tales paragraph formatting, the word night landscape appears at the end of the line. So, night land is hyphenated on at the end of one line. And okay. I, I thought that maybe that was like a subtle bone that Derelith or the Weird Tales editors were throwing at the yeah. reader there. Well, you know, I mean, and again, like it just seems like there's some fan service here. And I don't think enough time had passed. Like if, if Hodgson himself wrote this, it had to have been before like 1917. Yep. So... I don't know. I don't know. It just, it feels off to me. It feels... And at the same time, like, the practical issue of if Hodgson had this story under his belt and ready to go, 
before the first world war like why did it take until the late 1940s for it to surface you know you, you figure he would have tried to sell this one or push this one a little bit harder than yeah some of his other works because it's well his wife would have had to have done it yeah right afterwards and supposedly Durlith had access to a lot of things so i don't know there is a letter that exists apparently that says this is a thing so uh, but how much right how much it could have been much shorter it could have been just an outline by the time yeah he got to it we were talking about skylar's unwritten works in the two or three episodes back or mm. whatever it was we talked about the beast of bradhurst avenue oh yeah all the ideas they had. exactly yeah. and they were like three or four sentence sketches but you could easily see somebody taking those sketches and writing a pulp story that hits all oh, those yeah, notes sure. still being like a fully fleshed out so story. you can actually go to the clark ashton smith website uh, the eldersdark.com and i don't know if you still can but until recently you could see all the outlines of stories that smith wrote in combination with the regular stories so it's kind of sad but cool at the same time it's sad because you can see that clark ashton smith was the person who had a lot of creativity but who couldn't finish or follow through with a lot of things and it's kind of one of the things that i mean I'm going to work in, I'm going to figure out a way to work in Clark Ashton Smith to the podcast. Oh, point. I'd love to. Just because he's so cool. But, like, he's not very, I mean, he doesn't, he has some science fiction, but it's not often regarded as his best stuff. But I like some of those stories a lot. But anyway, like, you could just read these and you can tell that there's enough there that you could just make a story out of this and it would be cool. And you could even probably finish it the way he intended he just didn't flesh them out at all because he just didn't get around to it i guess maybe that's what this was you know maybe this was just a, a skeleton of a story yeah i think i'm like 75 percent on it being like mostly derlith authorship mm -hmm. but again it's impossible to say it, yeah. it's just guessing at this point unless something new surfaces in archival documents which is unlikely but again not unheard of yeah, I'm also leaning towards Durlith. I still think this is a really interesting work. It, obviously, as uh, you said, J.M., it doesn't compare with House on the Borderland, but I still think there's some really interesting imagery and like concepts in it that I really like quite a bit. And I, I also read this at the very end. This was the last of the Karnaki stories I read. And yeah. you definitely get the sense of it being so different from the others yeah absolutely yeah very more like a much more science fiction-ish mm. interpretation of the house on the borderland kind of scenario which makes sense right it makes sense that somebody would go there it feels right and it feels like yes this is i, I totally understand why somebody would do this and i'm not going to get mad so many years later that this maybe was published under Hodgson's name when it was fan fiction because there's so much Karnaki fan fiction out there already, right? Now, which we sort of alluded to before, and that is, some of it's pretty good. Some of it's pretty good, right? So let's give some slack to the hog, I guess. And, I liked uh, it a lot. I, I have to say, I, I liked it more than a lot of the authentic Karnaki stories. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I had mixed feelings, but I, I, I can totally see that. Some of the imagery was awesome, for sure. And it did give me that House in the Borderland vibe, which I love. So, I mean, I just think that 
yeah, the imagery of Bane's acting like a hog and having those snorting and and like yeah. looking into his eyes and still kind of seeing that there's that awareness like yeah. underneath it. That part was definitely stood out for me. And it's cool too because I picture him as this being this like I picture the way he's described in the story. He's just like kind of little guy. Yeah. He's like really unassuming looking and and maybe like handsome but in a kind of an angelic way and he's doing the hog thing and like Karnaki's holding him and it's just kind of like oh you know yeah. this poor and, and guy as he's holding him like ramrod straight he doesn't move completely unable to like even be moved into a different position yeah it's very yeah. paternal and like yeah nurturing right in, in a way that we don't really see Karnaki and other stories and i feel like if somebody else like uh, i don't know i was thinking a dh lawrence writing this story it'd be very homoerotic but he doesn't really take it there or introduce that kind of element it's very like caring and nurturing yeah but i do think there's signs that karnaki is that kind of person in the other stories so i, I do think it fits mm-hmm. right? like i think it, it's i get it i, I think it, it, it's not out of place that karnaki would be that nurturing i think that that the uh, abruptness and the rudeness that some people see is is a playfulness i i don't think it's real you know like and so and i think that that's the kind of person that he is i think he is more nurturing i think that john silence is more nurturing i think maybe john silence is my personal favorite of the early 1900s psychic detectives just because i think algernon blackwood is like he seems like a really cool person and that can translates to the characters that he writes. But mm. Karnaki's not far from that. You know, he's really caring. Yeah. Despite weird slips here and there and like yeah. cat sacrifices and stuff like that. <laughs> and the callous <laughs> treatment of the of the tramps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 But no, I think it ties into the fact that we see him as more vulnerable and we see him in a state of like being fearful. And I think that he understands vulnerability in other people because he knows the nature of fear. Right. And I think that that translates. And I think he isn't so he's someone who can understand why people would be afraid and wants to be better at comforting people because of that. Especially definitely afraid of a fate like this being slowly transmogrified into a hog by this psychic being that only comes to you in your sleep. I mean, that doesn't sound pleasant for anybody. No. No, and he can't escape. Yeah. He can't escape yeah. from it. Like, nothing will wake him up. Like, it's so... Mm-hmm. But I had to laugh a little bit because, so, in House of the Borderland, he never uses the word hog. It's always yeah. swine, right? Yeah, right, mm-hmm. right. It's both in this one, but, it, like, it's hog. Why hog, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It just, it just seems a little less something like i don't know i like the swine the swine does sound better i think a little classier than hog (laughs) yeah Yeah. hog just sounds dirty (laughs) it sounds rowdy it does it it reminds me of uh, this is only going to make sense to somebody from toronto but there was this radio station in toronto (laughs) in like the late 80s and early 90s and it was like a top 40 kind of radio station that didn't last for very long and it was very weird it was on the am band and it was like right next to another top 40 radio station and they called themselves the hog and the weirdest thing about this radio station was so you know how like normal radio stations they'll have these filler 
bits where they have the announcer come in and go, this is radio station CKLN. And, yeah, right. You know, he'll just like, <laughs> this one was like, it had that, but it was a voice that just went, the hog. And underneath that, you would hear like <laughs> pig noises. <laughs> and it was just the weirdest thing. And it was just like, that's, or these guys now, like, I'm just kind of thinking, were they secretly Hodgson fans? <laughs> like, what is this? It was so weird, too. And I didn't remember even a newspaper editorial at the time, like, commenting on that and then how tuning the dial and coming up to the hog. And, and it was like the station in Toronto that only lasted for like a f- couple of years, maybe less. It was the weirdest thing. And it was that. Like, it was just. I don't even remember any of the, D- the DJs on the station, whatever, anything about it. But their call sign things were weird. Like, and, and they, it was that. It was a voice saying the hog with all these pick noises going on underneath. And it was just, who thought of that? That's so yeah, weird. Yeah, jamming out to some top 40, some Richard Marks, and <laughs> getting hog-like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just seeing the hog, like, always making me think of that. I was kind of want to say the hog and like have the noises going on and just like I don't know it's just reading to House of the Borderland and then you know he never uses that right so again it just kind of makes me think it's different it's different than Hodgson somehow but I guess that's not necessarily a bad thing just always don't pass off your work as somebody else's please it's a scummy move yeah. It's a really scummy move. It's okay to write fan fiction. You can just say yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> you can just admit it. Yeah. People have been doing both passing off <laughs> their work as somebody else's for hundreds of years and writing fan fiction under their own name yeah. for hundreds yeah. of years, as, as I think we've done both on the podcast So uh, let's talk about a bit of the fan fiction then. So I think we all read the Doctor Who crossover because we're all Doctor Who fans and to a certain extent, or, you know, whatever. And so we all read Four Devils, the Telos novella, published by Telos Publishing in the early 2000s. And this one was by Andrew Cardinal, who is the script editor of late 80s Doctor Who, the Sylvester McCoy era. And, Nate, did you get a chance to read this? I didn't get a chance to get all the way through it. I kind of skimmed through, like, the first third or so. Okay. I don't know. There, I was kind of taken aback by the one frequent use of a racial slur, which, like, even in the 90s film, The Big Lebowski says that that is not the preferred nomenclature. And, and it does take place in 1800s China. And I don't know if they comment on that later with the class issues of the English being there and whatnot. But it, it kind of surprised me that kind of language being used in a 2000s era Doctor Who novel well I, I think that i was definitely commenting on that like i think it was, mm-hmm. is a, the doctor is very very non he's very neutral about commenting on all that stuff but andrew carmel comments on that so much that it's like obvious that he himself notices it and the doctor always remains a kind of a a, a figure that you don't really know a lot about what he's thinking but you can kind of guess, you know, like, and it's like when he makes a comment on and he says something like, oh, the local population is rebelling. And the way he says it, I don't know, you you can tell it's like 
there's a pointedness behind it, but he makes it sound neutral. So I don't know. I don't think he was necessarily, he doesn't preach, right? Yeah. No, I mean, like, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I didn't, like I said, I didn't read it in depth, but that was just something that very much stuck out to me as glancing through the pages and kind of seeing the setting of where it is and who the Doctor Who characters are involved. And I really do like the companion arrangement of Jamie and Zoe. I think they work really well on the show together. Yeah, Jamie's not in there very much. He sleeps through the whole book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Shows up about a chapter before the end. <laughs> is woken yeah, up. it's a very Jamie thing to do. <laughs> yeah, it is. I definitely think that it wasn't entirely consistent, yeah. but when he when he hit on it, he was really good. Like I like Andrew Clarkmore. I mean, I've read mm-hmm. his new his nineteen uh, nineties New Adventures books, which are a lot darker than this. And I've read the one of the books in the Vino Detective series, which is like his own thing that he started, which is a lot more lighthearted and a lot more kind of like it's literally about this guy who, with the help of his girlfriend, goes to hunt for obscure records, like vinyl records. And each one is about a different scenario or a culture, and there's a certain mystery behind it. I think he even did a metal-related one. And, yeah, they're cool. Like, it's, 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 I'm glad that he's doing his own thing now. Like, he was a script editor of Doctor Who in the late 80s, but when he wrote his... 90s books i could tell like there was something there like you know he's 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 a good writer but maybe he needs a bit of discipline or something like there's a bit of of, of rushed endings which seems to be a thing for him the ending of this one for devils seemed a little Mm -hmm. bit rushed so gretchen you were able to read it right Mm -hmm. yeah so so what do you think of it yeah the the last two chapters feel a little like it feels like he was trying to cram quite a bit in yeah. to the very end. Yeah. That could have been... Because I think before that, the pace is pretty good. Yeah. But then you get this ending that's pretty rushed, and there's sudden elements being added to it that weren't considered before. And I find that in his longer books, too, that's still the case. Mm-hmm. So, like, maybe not nowadays. Like, maybe now with a vinyl detective, you know, he's kind of worked it all out. Yeah. Because, you know, it's his own thing that he can do whatever he wants with. And mm-hmm. he's had a little bit of experience. And Doctor Who was kind of his building block. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I, what you're saying is definitely true. And that's even, like, in Warlock, which is, I think, my favorite of his Doctor Who books. Mm-hmm. That's still a thing. Like, the ending is really, whoa. Like, it's it's it seems rushed and cobbled a little bit. There were certain aspects of this that were, like, really, really good, and then certain aspects that seemed a little rushed and maybe not really gone over enough, but, like, I don't know. I like the way Zoe was portrayed. I thought she was I was going to say, I like the characterization of Zoe, and I I like the characterization of Karnacki. I I think, I know we mentioned earlier that he kind of is more on our side with the idea of that Karnacki is a, a kinder man, a nice man. And I think he portrays that very well. I think you get to see that he is a more caring person. Yeah, this is supposed to be set in 1900. So mm-hmm. it's just the, the beginning chapters that take that, that place in China. Then it moves to 1900 England, the estate of the family that has picked up the curse from this. They've basically been cursed because they've been opium dealers in China and screwing everything up and 
basically this astrologer has cursed the family and the prologue of the book is such a great hook. Nate, I'm sure you read that part at least. It's like just a, such a cool little hook into the adventure. I like that part a lot. That was like, after that part, I wanted to read more. Yeah, I mean, and it's kind of this weird locked room mystery kind of whodunit. Yeah. You know, like all these people are assembled together and there's all these guests and there's all these people who are here to listen to a recount of Karnaki and describe stuff that he's learned so far. But he's also bringing a female friend with him who is his medium of choice. And they seem to have a cool relationship. She's pretty cool and he's very open-minded. And they're supposed to do their thing. And weird stuff starts to happen from there. There's a dresser that lifts into the air and there's some piano that starts playing Thelonious Monk several decades (laughs) before he was even a thing. And the doctor's there and eventually... uh, they fanboy. Uh, the Doctor fanboys over meeting Karnaki, which is a lot of fun. Yeah. And yeah, like it definitely moves from the Chinese setting pretty quickly. Maybe that was because Karmok didn't really feel like he could convey it effectively or something like that. But mm-hmm. like that whole thing definitely influences what happens 100 years later. And it, it definitely feels like he's read all the Karnaki stories because it reminds me of like the gateway of the monster and how that thing happened 150 years ago and it's still affecting the house and it's still affecting the family. Mm-hmm. And this is something similar. It's a curse that and this time it's a curse. Well, maybe this way in the gateway too, but it's a curse that they seem to have earned, you know, like yeah. they seem kind of shitty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. I, like, I think that also thinking about it definitely is not on the side of the, the upcots. They are pretty terrible. They kind of all have their own, flaws that you kind of so you don't really feel too bad when they they wind up dead yeah well it's always good when you see the bad guys get what's coming to them in these kind of stories yeah Yeah. there is uh i do want to mention this is one thing that did stick out to me and I, i this could be a part of i think like the pacing problem is there's this one part where there's one murder that happens that turns out to be someone else murdered a person that wasn't part of the curse and it yeah. feels like they spend a very long time explaining that this was <laughs> like it. I don't think they needed to go into detail. I kind of understood what had happened yeah. the second it did. It was the husband. He was just yes. an asshole, right? Yeah, because like, uh, he kills his wife under the pretext of like, oh, everyone else is dying, so I can kill her. And I got that the second it happened. I kind of was like, oh, this isn't like the curse. This is he did this. Yeah. Especially the way he acted with the wife. But then it feels like they kind of have Zoe reacting as though she didn't know this and we're, we're supposed to be like her stand-in. So it feels like we weren't supposed to know it before that and they waste a, quite a bit of time on that. But I don't know if that was, maybe that was not, maybe that's just me getting it too early. No, I, I think you're right. I think it was a little bit strange, but I, I do also think that Karnaki and the Doctor who are like, the two investigators, you know, they kind of picked up on that early. Mm-hmm. And that's why, like, first of all, they picked up on that, but they didn't necessarily want to announce it aloud, like, right away, mm-hmm. right? But yeah, it was a little bit strangely handled in the sense that, you know, you're like, oh, you know, so that's what he's done. And, and he comes out and he's like, yeah, I admit it, I did that. 
But I didn't do all the other ones, and this one is okay. I think that just kind of reflects how he thought, and he was that kind of person who thought, yeah, I mean, I killed my wife, but it's fine. I can get out of this. I can explain myself. A court of law will probably support me because I'm an upper-class English gentleman, and she doesn't matter. She's just a horrible person, and yeah, I can convince them of that. It just seemed like that was kind of pointing that, yeah, this guy's that much of an asshole, but yeah. it was like, he was also kind of friendly to them because he had to follow the conventions of the time and place, right? Mm-hmm. And so the t- the tone is a little strange, but I think it works. I think it's a sort of a commentary on Victorian class, this and that, yeah. right? Like it's kind of without having read it in detail, it's kind of hard to say. But I mean, Zoe's supposed to be like the most intelligent companion yeah. the Doctor has had during the second run. There, anyway, yeah. even possibly more intelligent than the doctor himself in some ways. I mean, the second doctor is very loopy out of even the doctor's personalities and <laughs> yeah. odd and doing That's strange things. one of the things, things we like about him, though. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I think the second doctor is probably my favorite era of the oh, show. Definitely in, like, top three favorite, favorite eras, favorite doctors. Yeah, I mean, the sci-fi horror vibe it captures is just incredible and like i i absolutely love that kind of stuff and Mm -hmm. especially the way the companions set of the doctor zoe and jamie bounce off of one another of zoe kind of serving as a more logical grounded foil but like an intelligent one to the doctor you know like they're both Mm -hmm. playing the wizards but yeah zoe's kind of more i guess grounded in reality versus i don't know i like victoria and i like polly and ben but they definitely play different roles in the party. I, I like Zoe best. I like I love her introduction. Yeah. I like the wheel in space. Is, oh, it's great. Yeah. It's great. I mean, it's one of those things like it's not a love story by fans, but I kind of feel like if it was discovered in video, people might like it more kind yeah. of thing. Mm-hmm. The plot's very haphazard, but it's very fun. And Zoe's introduction is great. And yeah. I just love her more futuristic sensibility i i think that's just great and i think the actress is really good and like mm-hmm. i like the way in this story too like the very first thing zoe's kind of criticizing the doctor for his scanner screens she's like why can't you make why can't you have something with better resolution yeah so i don't know i enjoyed i enjoyed it doctor who and Karnaki crossover sounds kind of perfect. So in the ebook edition, this isn't the case, but the original Telos novella, I think these were all published in hardcovers in the early 2000s. So the idea of the series was that they essentially were novellas that during the so-called wilderness years, which which is kind of one of my favorite periods of Doctor Who, to be honest, they kind of thought, oh, you know, we'll make these books with a slightly more literary bent and we'll get some semi-popular authors to write for us. So they somewhat succeeded. Kim Newman wrote the first one. He is a very well-known English horror writer. He's written a lot of stuff, many of which involves key characters that are everyone knows, like Dracula and Frankenstein, but also his own things and his own psychic detective, which I came across. I can't remember his name now. He's in this field, too. And Simon Clark, who's a pretty popular English horror writer, was involved in one of the books. He wrote one of the books as well. So it's a pretty interesting experiment. The introductions are all written by, again, 
semi, I guess, recognized authors like Storm Constantine and stuff like that writing the introduction. So it just seemed like they they tried to make a different kind of thing. And then the idea behind the books that they were all supposed to be something a little bit special was a little bit different than some of the regular Who novels that were going on at that time. So the Karnaki crossover was Four Devils by Andrew Carpel. It's pretty cool. Originally published in hardcover with The Whistling Room. So the idea was, I guess, he wanted people to get to know what kind of things Karnaki had to deal with on his own. And The Whistling Room is a pretty good story to include. It's one of my two top favorites, I guess. So again, like I said, if you're going to introduce somebody to Karnaki, that's a really good one to pick. They did. So yeah, pretty cool. Karnaki's appeared in a number of other places. He's in The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen by Alan Moore. He appears in two volumes of the series, I believe. I'm not really familiar with it, but he's there, apparently, along with a lot of other famous literary characters. And he shows up in, like we were saying earlier, a lot of his own stuff by William Michael and other writers. So... Karnaki's still alive and well, and I kind of wonder where some of these people have taken him. I I feel like there's many ways you could go with these stories, so it's really cool. I like, I don't know, I'm in the mood that I like thinking about Karnaki fanfiction right now, so <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> that's that, yeah. yeah. So Hodgson did a good thing. He yeah. introduced his character, and he left space for more. Yeah. Yeah. Karnaki's cool. I mean, I guess final thoughts on it is I, while I liked all the other Hodgson stuff we've done on the podcast more than any of these stories, I still liked a fair amount of them quite a bit. Yeah. Also quite partial to his use of the word funk in every single story. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm glad that you mentioned that. I yes. think we're probably going to cut the infectious grooves chatter when your fire alarm was going off Gretchen. But if you, the audience is reading one of these stories every time he uses the word funk, just picture infectious grooves at the end of Encino Man, and you have a nice little oh. juxtaposition in your mind. Oh. There. <laughs> All right, so... <laughs> and the word funk is used in the hog, so I... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> who knows? Maybe that Maybe that was Hodgson, maybe that was Dirth. Yeah. <laughs> I put together my funk album based on Karnaki here. Okay. So, let's see. Uh, what do we got? I counted the number of times the word funk showed up because you pointed this out. And I was like, yeah, you know what? You're right. So here's here's the album. All right. Track number one. Cold and funky. Number two. Without any more funkin'. Number three. Disgusting funk. Number four. Simply funking it. Parts one and two. <laughs> number five. Sheer funk. Parts one and two. Featuring... Clive Stubblefield and the J.B. Horns. Chapter 6. Quivering with Funk. Number 7. Sickening Funk. Number 8. Don't Sneer at the Funk featuring Richie Blackmore. (laughs) Number 9. A Horrible Funk. Track 10. Paralyzed Funk. What kind of funk is this anyway? These are in brackets, by the way. (laughs) Number 11. Another Thrill of Horrible Funk. So, yeah, somebody wants to make that funk album, be my guest. Yeah, uh, I got a, a trumpet. Yeah. I got a really shitty trumpet, if you want. <laughs> <laughs> we had a lot of fun with these. I think we all enjoyed the trip. 
some were better than others, but yeah, read these. Hopefully you've listened to all this. Maybe you've read them already, but yeah, good stuff. I, I too overall enjoyed these stories and yeah, even even the ones that didn't stand out or, you know, weren't as great as the other stories. I think just in general, I, I overall really liked the character of Karnaki and I, I want to explore some of the some of the Karnaki fan fiction out there, some of the <laughs> other stories written by him about yeah, me him. Too. Yeah, there's a bunch of stuff out there. The New Adventures, but also all this the collections by William Michael and this Brandon Barrows character. I don't know anything about him, but it's it all looks pretty interesting. So Karnaki lives. Yeah. Karnaki lives. Cheers to that. So next month, I think it's time for us to move away from these kind of stories and focus on the American pulp science fiction magazines, specifically amazing stories. So next month, we'll be doing, among other things, The New Accelerator by H.G. Wells, a story that was requisitioned for Amazing and published in the first issue of said magazine. Jack Williamson's The Prince of Space from the January 1931 issue. Leslie F. Stone's serialized novel, Out of the Void, published in the August and the September issues of 1929. The Undersea Tubes by L. Taylor Hansen from the November 1929 issue. The Moon Woman by Minna Irving, published in March of 1934. And finally, Lee Brackett's story, No Man's Land in Space, from July of 1941. These were all stories published in the first ever official science fiction pulp, Amazing Stories. And it had its ups and downs, that's for sure, and was heavily criticized, but it's also very important, and so it's something we really have to get into. But I think now I must tell you all to remain within the pentacle and to ensure that your candles are all lit. And if you find out the last land of the Sama ritual, be sure to let us know. But out you go. The podcast is over. Go get some sleep. Good night. Mm-hmm.